The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, good morning. Wasn't that a sweet time of worship? <clears throat> yeah. We're in now the third week of this series that we're doing on the real God, and I, I, I will state my purpose really in presenting this series is because I believe that as we get out of our minds the images of God that we like to create, the images of God that we may tag onto what are revealed character and nature of God is, and we like to tack onto that in our mind and, and oftentimes have a distorted view of who God is. My desire is that as we look at all of these dis- different attributes in this eight-week series, we will have a change that comes about in our worship. And I'm not talking about our worship just here on Sunday morning, but I'm talking about the worship that we engage in in every single day of our life. I believe that as we truly look at who God is and we begin our devotion times in the morning, our quiet time in the morning, if we remind ourselves before we utter one single prayer to God, that we remind ourselves that, as we saw in the first week, that, that God is real big. As we saw in the second week, we saw that God is a good God, that, that He's a generous God. And this week, as we look at the fact that God not only declares, but we witness in reality that God is a sovereign God, that as we look at all of these things of God, it will change our approach to Him in our quiet time. It will change our prayers to Him and as we how, how we pray. It'll change the way that we express our worship to Him in our corporate times of service or in your small groups. It'll change the dynamic of how we function in our household with our family. It'll change the way that we approach our vocation and our job. It'll change the way that we approach our activity and our fun, and we'll be able to accept it even when the Georgia Bulldogs lose on a Saturday morning. Boo on that one. Jim Elliott in 1955 was a student at Wheaton College in Illinois preparing for ministry. It was there that he met who would soon become his wife, Elizabeth. Many of you are familiar with the story of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott had such a passion for God, he fell on the hills just a few years after Billy Graham had gone through Wheaton College and had begun his evangelistic crusades, and there were countless numbers of people responding to the gospel in our nation during that period of time. And it was in that time that there was a great move of call to missions to foreign lands, especially to individuals or people groups who had never heard the name of Jesus. And God got a hold of Jim Elliott's life. And in 1955, he and his wife married, and they they went to a little place in Ecuador, first Quito, Ecuador, because he had learned from a former missionary in Ecuador of a group of Indian people 
by the name of the Akua Indians who lived there on the Amazon Basin who were very remote and they'd never heard the gospel message and Jim was burdened for those people and he desired that they would hear the name of Jesus. Now it had been reported that this particular group of Indians were very hostile to anyone from the outside. As a matter of fact, there had been verified reports of any outsiders that had come into their area. They would be killed and and slain at the hands of these Indians, and they were very, very vicious tribe of people. So Jim and four other missionaries and their wives relocated to Quito, Ecuador, where they spent some time learning the language, and then where they had begun to go into this village over dropping messages and, and gifts into the village, trying to make a way so that they might be received to go in with the gospel. And finally, the opportunity they came, that they began to get a positive response in, in the reciprocation of those gifts that had been given to them, and they thought it was time to go in and now to be able to communicate with them and and establish relationships so that they would hear the name of Christ. And on January the 7th, 1957, they finally landed there in that area on a small, in a small plane on a sand shore along the Amazon River where they made their initial physical contact with this Indian group. But it was on January the 8th, 1957, the following day after they had initially made some positive contact with some of those from the group where another group came and with swords and spears killed Jim Elliott and the other three missionaries that were there. Prior to Jim Elliott going to this place in Ecuador, he made this statement in his journal. He says, I have covenanted with the Father that he would either glorify himself to the uttermost in me or he would slay me. Now, I'm not sure if Jim Elliott understood the words that he wrote that day, but we see it come to pass in that he so desired that God would glorify God himself through Jim Elliott's life that he would either glorify him and either using him or glorify God himself and slaying him. Shortly after Jim Elliott's death, Elizabeth, along with her two-year-old daughter, really believed that God was calling her back to Ecuador in the same location, in the same village where her husband and three other missionaries had been slain. And she went there and served two years with favor among these tribal people. And at the end of that two years, most of the village had come to know Christ and surrendered their lives and where they were once vicious attackers of even her own husband had known the gospel of Jesus Christ and their lives were forever changed. If you know the story, even some years later, the man who was responsible for throwing the spear that would kill her husband met Elizabeth Elliot and asked her forgiveness. He had come to Christ and Elizabeth spent several years ministering around the country and sharing the story of God's redeeming power through his son, Jesus Christ. Later in her years, at the age of 87, her daughter would write this about Elizabeth Elliot as she was suffering with dementia. She said, God knows the way through the wilderness, her mother said. And she goes on to say that from that point on in her father's death and Jim Elliott's death, mom exemplified her trust in the sovereignty of the Lord. 
this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, if we grab hold of it, if we grasp it, if we believe it, and if we live it, I believe can be one of the most life-transforming doctrines, understanding, teaching of who God himself is, that, that God is a sovereign God. Now, you may be like me. Early in my uh, coming to know Christ, I heard the word sovereign, and I thought, what, does, what in the world does that mean? It's that word that we like to use within the church. We all know it. Some of you may be in the church for 30 years, and you still don't understand what sovereignty is, but just to be like everybody else, you use the phrase, God is sovereign. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean when we say that, that God is sovereign? I like how Webster defines this word. Webster defines it this way, someone who is above all, who is superior, the greatest the chief, the supreme power, the ranking authority, one without equal, one who is excellent, and someone who possesses absolute control. There are synonyms that are used in Scripture sometimes that, in, that, that translate the same word, and, and it's translated this way, that he's the ruler, he's the ultimate authority, he is the God that's in control, he is the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. He's without equal, without limitation in any way, the only absolute free being in all of the universe. And even in those defining words and statements of the sovereignty of God, it still falls short of what it means that God is a sovereign God. Now, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, as I've already stated, is, is a very comforting doctrine. My goodness, how else do we answer? How else do we respond to life's tragic events that take place? And when we look around the world and it seems as though the world is just spiraling out of control, the comfort of knowing that while all this is happening, we know that God is sovereign. We know that God rules over all. And my faith and my trust is in a sovereign God, not in the happenings of world events. This doctrine of the sovereignty of God has, has also brought about some real questions and has caused hotly debated debates within the body of Christ for now, for now, de for now decades and centuries, literally, and, and we're not going to solve it in the next hour and a half in this message. Now I got your attention. But I want to propose to you some things that that the Bible says, declares about the sovereignty of God and how we as believers respond to the sovereignty of God. Again, I said it was a hotly debated issue, and, and I would encourage discussion along with Scripture in your small groups as you're doing these studies. You'll be doing this next week. But, but I'd ask you, please don't argue about it. Amen? Because we're going to see that in one of the problems of the sovereignty of God is really not a problem to God. It's only a problem to us. How else can one who is, in, who is finite, me, a created one, how am I ever going to comprehend fully the one who is the infinite God? You see, sometimes we have the idea that we're, we're capable of fully comprehending that. 
But the fact is, he is God Almighty, and he's the infinite creator of you and me and everything around us, and he knows all of it. He's in control all of it. There's nothing that happens that, that, that does not come into his sight or his view. We have to accept and trust and worship the sovereign God. Let me give you four ways briefly that, that God, how God reveals to us his sovereignty. Number one is this in Scripture, that, that God reveals his sovereignty to us through his special revelation, the Word of God, as he has made known to us himself. He expresses it in his titles by, by calling himself the Sovereign Lord. From this word of, of God being a sovereign God, we, we have three things that pop into our minds that theologians try to explain the sovereignty of God by using these expressions. Number one is maybe you've heard that, that there's the omniscient God, that God knows everything. God knows the number of hairs on your head, and God knows the thoughts in your heart before you ever speak a word on your tongue the Bible says, that God knows all. There's nothing that escapes God's view, God's sight, that God is omnipotent, meaning that, that God has all power. And I would, I would agree, and, and I'd propose that, that that's hard for you and I to comprehend because we do not have all power. As a matter of fact, we can somehow have the idea that, that there seems to be no power in the world and that everything, again, is just about to go crazy. And if you talk to anybody out in the community lately, if you engage with people, there's this sense of unease because they're recognizing that all of these other things that man has to offer to the solutions in the world are falling short. We're recognizing and realizing that, that politicians, while they may weld human power, they are not fully in authority. They are not all power. Amen? That God alone is all power, and God alone is the one who sets up kings on their throne or rulers, and God's the one who takes them down. And so there, there's God God Almighty, omniscient. And the third thing is that God is omnipresent, meaning that, that God is everywhere at all times in all places. Not that he's a pantheistic God, don't misunderstand that, but that God is so powerful, he's so big, he's so great, words fail me, that God is present. And how God can be present in your life today in Conyers, Georgia, and, a, and be present in the life of an individual in Indonesia today at the the same time, it boggles the mind. Can I get an amen to that? But that God declares himself as the sovereign God. He declares himself as the most high God. He declares himself as the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. I love what Isaiah writes in Isaiah, beginning in chapter, uh, in chapter 44, verse 6. He says, God says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. 
Let them declare what is to come and what will happen, meaning those other so-called gods. He says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declare it? And are you my witnesses? Is there any God beside me? No, there is no rock. I know not any. All other gods are little G's. There's the one true God. Had an opportunity a couple of weeks ago to talk to somebody out in town and was able to begin to, to share, and we talked about God. And I asked them the question, do you know the one true God? Because they were claiming to know God, and, and they had God in their conversation. It may be that they learned that I was a pastor, and so all of a sudden they had to throw God in there, right? And I said, are you talking about the one true God? And the response was, I don't know that there is a one true God. You see, folks are happy to talk about God, but are they speaking of the one true God? And you and I are blessed by His grace to know the one true God, and God has called us as His ambassadors to declare to those who do not know Him the way that they can come to know Him through the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The second way that he reveals his sovereignty to us in scriptures are, are through his promises. We've spoken a number of times about the passage that we're about to look at, but it's one of the most clear passages in scripture to me to understand that, that the God who makes promises is sovereign. He's, uh, he's, he's in control of everything, and, and regardless of whether life events come our way that, that would be pleasing or unpleasing to you and I, that behind it all is a sovereign God. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, Paul writes this, and he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many things? How much is all? So the reverse of that, is there anything that happens in all of creation, in our, all, in our lives, that God does not work for good? No. For those who are called according to His purposes. Now here He's speaking of those who are called out ones, us as believers, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And then I want to go ahead and read verses 29 and 30. He says, for those that God foreknew, he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Stop there. Notice what he has predestined you and I as Christ's followers to. God has predetermined, God has predestined that he is going to work in your life and in my life to conform us to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. And can I say this, that God uses good things, but in my life, most often it seems as though that God has used what seem to be bad things, but recognizing that God has allowed those in my life because it's the only way that he could work to conform me to the likeness of Christ. Just a tidbit of a story. You've heard me share of some horrible experience that my family went through several years ago. And I was just sharing with somebody this last week when they were talking to me about it, and I said, you know what, I would almost go through all of that again 
to have God do the work in me that he could only do through that time. You see, I thought I was a gracious person, but it was after going through that, God worked into me. I'm not bragging, but, but I've, God's given me a grace almost to a fault. But God couldn't have done that had he not brought me to that lowest point in my life thus far that I've had to where he changed that in me and that God uses all things to conform us to the likeness of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified. He saved us, declared us righteous before him. You and I think of ourselves as unrighteous, but do you know that the Bible tells us that God has declared us righteous in his sight through Jesus Christ, that, that we stand before him righteous, not because of anything that I have done, but according to his mercy, the Bible says, that he saved us that God has declared us righteous in his sight, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The third area that I'd like to propose that God reveals his sovereignty to us is, is in this area of prophecy, meaning that those things that were prophesied as of old, that, that only a God who is a sovereign God could bring about the events as he had prophesied through his prophets that they would take place. And had there not been a sovereign God, there's no way that these things could have been fulfilled. One instance that sticks out in my mind as I think about God displaying his sovereignty through prophecy is through the prophet of Daniel in chapter 2. You don't have, we don't have time to turn there and read the story, and I'll, I'll just briefly give you the account. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar one night had a dream, and, and in this dream he saw a figure. It was a, it was a man that was standing there, a tall man, and the top of his head and his helmet was, was fashioned out of that which was gold, and his, and his armor and his chest were fashioned out of the metal that is silver, and in his belly, his midsection, there was what was, what was there is made up of, of bronze, and his legs were made of iron, but his feet were a mixture of of iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't figure out what this image was. And so he put out a decree to all of his sorcerers that they might not only interpret the vision that he had seen, but he had not told of them that vision. And he said, but to know that it's true, you've got to tell me the dream first. Now, it's one thing for somebody to say, okay, interpret this dream for me. But you know you got the right interpretation if the individual is able to tell you what the dream was, right? And so as we, we look at this, Daniel declares to him in Daniel chapter 2, he says this, beginning in verse 20, he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my Father, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and you have not, and you've now made known to me what we have asked of you for you made known to us the king's matters. So Daniel makes a request after God had given him 
the image that Nebuchadnezzar had had in his mind. He makes the request to come before the king, to have an audience with the king so that he can give the interpretation to the king. And Daniel begins to unfold not only the vision, but he begins to unfold the prophecy of what was going to take place, that there will be other kingdoms that follow Nebuchadnezzar. That Nebuchadnezzar was, was that representation of, of the golden head, the helmet that was there of gold, and, and the silver that was of the arms and the chest would, would be the, the Medo, Medo-Persians that would come after that, and they would rule all the known world, and, and the, the belly or the thighs that were of bronze, that that was going to be Greece. You remember the, the Grecian Empire? Remember Alexander the Great, that that would be a kingdom that would come and conquer all the known world, that the iron legs later would, would see that that was Rome, that, 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 that would be that power that would arise and, and rule over all of the known world, and lastly, which that one has not yet come, would be the feet that are made up of iron and clay. All of these things, all of these kingdoms prophesied by God through one man, and they all took place, as history tells us, to the very nth detail. Now, there was a period of time where there were those who made the claim, well, there's got to be a second writer to the book of Daniel, those who are liberal in their theology, And somehow or another, after all these kingdoms came, they wrote that and they inserted it, and that was kind of the theory for a long time until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, verifying that that God had prophesied these things to Daniel hundreds of years before they came to pass. And that last kingdom that has yet been established, to me, the most plausible answer in that is, is what we refer to as, as, the, as the, uh, the, the, the revived Roman Empire, that out of Europe will come these ten nations, and through that the Antichrist will establish himself. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ, while he came the first time as a suffering servant, the next time he comes, he's going to be the conquering king, and he's going to establish himself as Lord of lords and King of kings. And if we can look back through prophecy and see the sovereignty of God, we can certainly look forward to those things that have not taken place yet and say, yes, God, you're faithful to your promises, that no matter what king arises, no matter what president arises, no matter what government arises, God, you are almighty, and you are coming to rule and reign forever and ever and ever. Amen? The last way that I see that God reveals his sovereignty in Scripture is probably the most incredible way, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. This verse that I'm about to read for you in Galatians chapter 4 has been one that for years I've just contemplated and meditated on. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 about the supernatural birth of Christ. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The fullness of time. That word that's translated, that phrase that's translated in in our English Bibles, the fullness of time, has the idea of a woman who is pregnant and she's about to give birth. You ever seen one of those? You look at them and you go, whoa. (laughs) She's ready, right? 
Well, it's that thing, and at just the right time, the fullness of God, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, a virgin woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, there are a couple of things that we need to understand historically that were taking place in the world at that time that had never taken place yet before. Why was it the exact time that God would have sent his son? I mean, if I'd been God, I would have waited until the internet, right? But when you look at all of what had taken place there, the, the preceding Grecian Empire, where on, in all the known world, there was a common language that was spoken among every nation, every person, and that was Koinonia Greek. That if the Hebrew spoke Hebrew, he also knew and understand, understood Koinonia Greek. If the individual spoke Aramaic, he also knew and understood the, the language of the day, Greek. And so it was at that time that it was set up, and I see the sovereign hand of God in this, that the message then would be able to be spread. Now, in that period of time, it was very dangerous to travel, not like it is today. They're not call stations along the roadway. They're not places we can pull aside and use our cell phone to call somebody to come and fix our flat tire, lest we fall prey to somebody trying to do us harm. In those days, you really took your life at risk traveling any distance. But the Roman Empire, because of this, in order to bring out peace throughout the land where there'd be a settlement and commerce and trade could, could happen freely, they put outposts all over the Roman Empire that were set there to guard the safety of those that would be traveling. And oh, by the way, we were not the first nation to develop interstate highway commerce. It was Rome. And I've seen many of these old Roman roads while I've traveled in Europe. And I think, man, those things have lasted thousands of years, and we can't get the access road potlucks filled, potholes filled over here. You see, just at the fullness of time, do you see God's hand in that? Do you see His sovereignty in that? That, that it would be at that time that God would send forth His Son. We also see very briefly, I'm just going to hit these points in Christ, His, His perfect life, that He would live a sinless life, that He would come not to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. I can give you some verses on that, uh, that that you can look at. Matthew chapter 4, verse 14. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21, and many others. And there were hundreds of prophecies that were made years before Christ ever came, fulfilling His coming. His messianic teaching in John chapter 8, verses 48 to 58. His willful death on the cross that had not only taken place, but had been prophesied of, and absolutely his ultimate reign, which we see in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. You see, God has brought about and has displayed his sovereignty through his son Christ as well. Lastly, in one of the ways that that I seem to relate to most is that God displays His sovereignty through the redeeming of pain in our lives. And this is going to kind of answer one of those questions that we might have of the sovereignty of God. 
We've just finished the book of Genesis, and so I won't relate all of Joseph's life to you. Hopefully, you were here during that series of sermons through Genesis. But we see all the way from, I think, Genesis chapter 37 through the end of the book. A third of the book of Genesis is written about one individual. And all through that individual's life, Joseph, we see the sovereignty of God being displayed so that God would preserve the nation of Israel that he had called unto himself through Abraham where he gave the promise, Abraham, you're going to have descendants that outnumber the grains of sand, that outnumber the stars. From you is going to come a great nation, and through that would come the Messiah. Abraham, I've set you apart, and I'm going to preserve you. And we look at the life of Joseph and, and all the injustices that seem to happen in Joseph's life. My goodness, he's sold into slavery by his brothers who first wanted to kill him. And then something good begins to happen, and he he gets to be placed in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar sees he has all of these administrative abilities, and he puts him in charge of all of his household, only in the midst of that to have Potiphar's wife make advances on him day in and day out. And when finally Joseph fled the advances of his wife, she's standing there holding his robe, and when Potiphar comes home, he says, see what happened, this man that you brought into our house. And so Potiphar throws him into jail, so it's gone from bad with his brothers to a little better under Potiphar's house, and now to real bad when he's thrown in jail. And, and somehow or another, the, the cupbearer and the baker messed up, and, and they were thrown into prison with Joseph, and Joseph's allowed to interpret their dreams, and, and the dreams came true. One came out pretty good. The other one came out pretty bad. He says, remember me. Remember me when you go back into Pharaoh's court, but they forgot about Joseph until one day, Pharaoh has a dream. And all of a sudden, the baker says, you know, I, I do remember, the, the cupbearer says, I do remember this guy that interpreted my dream in prison. So he brings him there, and, and, and Joseph, all of a sudden again, he interprets a dream, and he's put over all of the, the grain the distri- distribution because of the drought and then God's provision in, in Egypt, and, 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 and he's put over in charge of all of this there where God takes him from the prison to the palace, so it goes from bad to, uh, bad to better again. And then how God preserved his family as they came to Egypt. But the point I want to make is that Joseph, when he's standing there with his brothers, he makes the comment, and I'm paraphrasing, you don't need to be afraid because God's the one who's put me here. You see, all of this other stuff that I went through, I recognize that God is a sovereign God. And while it may have been unpleasant, while it may have been displeasing, I recognize and realize that by the sovereign hand of God, He has brought me here. And then in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You see, only a sovereign God is able to redeem the pain of life for his good purposes and his goodwill. Someone said this, and I love the statement, that God whispers in our prosperity, but he shouts in our pain. God whispers in our prosperity, but he shouts in our pain. Now, real briefly, there are two problems that seem to arise when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Number one is this, that, that if God is sovereign, then, then why is there 
evil in the world. I mean, if God's in control of everything, if God's a good God, why is there evil? Why is there suffering in life? Why is there death in life? Why is there pain in life? If God was sovereign, he could have prevented this from coming into existence. Why did he not do so? Why didn't he prevent it? And the short answer is this, that the evil and pain and suffering does not negate the sovereignty of God. For you see, God is not caught off guard in your life or my life in the world through suffering and evil and pain. What it means that God is a sovereign God is that even in the midst of that, God will and is going to fulfill His purposes for His glory in your life and in my life and all around the world. Maybe you've asked that question. I can remember years ago with a family member in my life as a little girl had had a terrible experience. You can just fill in the blank. And I was asking God, why? Why did you let this happen to her? And if I said what it was, you would automatically ask the same question too. God, she's an innocent little girl. Why did this happen? And I wrestled with that answer. And, and the only thing that I could come up in that, in that conclusion is that I know that, that the Bible teaches the absolute sovereignty of God. And at the same time, I understand that it's so displayed throughout all of Scripture that, that God so loves us. God so loves his creation that he gives us the will to make choices in our life. And sometimes the choices that others make bring harm into another individual's life. And the one thing that God will not violate is our will to choose. Now, these two doctrines... The sovereignty of God and the free will of man is the second problem that comes about when we think about this. And if God's sovereign, then why does he let man make choices that sometimes bring harm, devastation into other people's lives? And my question to that would be, where would God intervene and where would he not intervene? We wrestle with this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and, and some take it to the far extreme where they even justify sin, that God is so sovereign that, and I've heard it from individuals on that ultra extreme, extreme that, that God is, is even, in some cases, the author of sin, which the Scriptures say that God cannot be tempted by sin, nor does He tempt others by sin, so that can't be the case. And in that far extreme over here to, to the ultra of, of the absolute sovereignty of God makes all of us nothing but little mechanical beings. And why then would we ever be responsible for any decision that we make if God is sovereign to that extreme? You hear what I'm saying? You see, the other side of it, 
kind of absolutely removes the sovereignty of God and places everything in life on our hands. And somehow or another, you have a God that's sitting up there going, man, I hope it all works out. And in that extreme, we, we never know today whether we're saved or not. What, what sin is it all of a sudden that causes me to, to not be saved anymore if God is not sovereign in saving me? And I've responded to the message. Well, here's the way that I've been able to reconcile this. And by the way, I've been studying this for I don't know how long, and I still wrestle with it. I wrestled with it this last week. Dr. Mapes, you still wrestle with it. Amen. We do. Here's the best way I can explain it. Brandon, if you'll put the picture up there. I like to look at it this way. What you see in the picture there is, is a train track. And, and somewhere down that train track, if I look far enough, what happens to the two rails? on that train track. They come together. You see, the left side indicates the sovereignty of God, and and the right side indicates the free will of man. Now, as long as those two tracks are there, the train's going to keep going down the track okay, right? What happens if you remove either one of those tracks? The train derails. You see, I don't know, I don't understand how this works. If I did, then I might be God. (laughs) But I know that this book teaches both. The absolute sovereignty of God and our response to a holy God to make decisions in responding to His grace and His mercy and His commands in our life. I can't remove either one of those. But what it causes me to do, rather than want to have debate about it, it causes me to say, God, you are just incredible. You're awesome. Because there is no other like you. There's no other that could take these two seemingly diametric and make it all work out. That's the God we worship. In closing, I'll ask this question. Then, then how do we respond to this sovereign God? Number one is this, that we bow before His sovereignty. The application in my life, in your life, is that we have absolute surrender of all we are and all we have. Absolute surrender. We bow before Him. Number two, we believe all that comes into our life is either decreed or allowed by God. We don't have to understand it. We just have to trust a sovereign God. The application is that we absolutely refuse to worry because God is in absolute control. The lastly, we behold the majesty and the sovereignty of God, and the application is that we worship God for who He is, not merely for what He has done. How do you need to respond this morning to the sovereignty of God?
Are you here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior? I'd like to invite you today to place your trust in Christ. Are you here maybe as a, a believer that somewhere, somewhere down the way in life that, that maybe God has, has not responded to you the way that you thought He ought to or something happened and you're, God, how could you be? How could you let this happen? And you're not bowed and surrendered to God's sovereign, loving hand in your life. And ask God to give you the faith to trust Him in that. I don't know how it is you need to respond. An old preacher told me a long time ago that whenever the Word of God's preached, we either respond one of three ways. But the Word of God necessitates a response. We can either respond mad, glad, which is praise, or sad. How are you going to respond today? I'm going to close this in prayer. And as you go to your small groups, you may spend a little time this morning on this, or you may be looking at the goodness of God, but I really think the two go together. Father, we pray that God, by the Holy Spirit, you'd awaken our hearts and our eyes to see you as the real God, who you are. God, it wouldn't be for for mental exercise just to know more stuff, information. God, as we see you, that, God, you would grow our hearts in worship of you and that, God, somehow that would compel us to want to share this one and true God with those who do not know him everywhere that we go. Father, I pray this morning that if there's one listening to this message, God, that they've not responded to Christ, to receive Him today as as the atoning sacrifice for their sins, the forgiveness of their sins. And God, that today would be a day that they would decree, declare that, Lord, from this day forward, He's going to be the Lord of their life. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name for His sake. Amen. Let's stand and be dismissed. The Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you. I will be out in the lobby to you, to my left if you're a guest this morning or you need to respond in a way to the message today. I'd love to have the opportunity to speak to you, uh, to pray with you, and help lead you in what that next step decision would be. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.